Our scripture today is from Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. Hear God's word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Hey, uh, just one thing I want to uh, announce to you all before we dive in here this morning. Uh, at the last elder meeting, slight uh, change in the pastoral staff. Uh, we wanted to let you know of that the elders have officially made Pastor Tim uh, officially pastor of visitation here at Grace Church. Um, you know, as programs and emphasis and things change, sometimes, you know, over the years, pastoral uh, job staff, job descriptions get shifted around and moved around and things like that. Uh, and one thing that we're all very concerned, very interested in, is this, it's just this growing interest to make sure that there is somebody on staff whose primary responsibility uh, is just visitation and individual one-on-one pastoral care, wherever that's needed. Uh, and uh, this has just happened to be something that uh, Pastor Tim is incredibly gifted at, and has also just been very refreshing and energizing to him uh, as of late. And so... Uh, the elders, so we've kind of shuffled some things around. Some things are coming off of Tim's plate a little bit. And he's just going to be primarily a pastor of visitation. And uh, we just want to let you know that, um, uh, one, just to reinforce that that is something that we strongly value here. And so much so that we want to designate one person to be primarily responsible for that. And so if you ever, you know, would just like uh, opportunity to meet with uh, you know Pastor Tim to pray with him and to talk some things through or whatever. Uh, please don't hesitate in the least uh, to take advantage of that. Uh, the also reason we wanted to let you know that is because you'll probably be seeing that you know whatever on signs in front of his office or whatever. And we wanted to make sure you understood that that does not mean that Pastor Mark or myself no longer have interest in visiting and catching up with people. Uh, we we very much do, and as I often say, you provide a cheesesteak, I'll come wherever you want to go. And, and so anytime, please, by all means. Um, so please don't interpret it as, okay, well, I guess I can't, you know, whatever, reach out to those other guys. That, that's not at all what it is. Again, it's just that we just want to let you know that we are solely dedicating his responsibilities, making sure he's just overseeing and making sure nobody's falling through the cracks or if somebody winds up in the hospital or if somebody would like to have communion brought to them. And Pastor Tim is the one... Taking responsibility there. All right? If you have any questions, come talk to me. I'm Mike Plord, chairman of the Elder Board. Uh, happily uh, talking that through with you. Other than that, all right, we're going to dive in, uh, looking at uh, this letter to the uh, church in Ephesus, chapter 2 in the book of Ephesians. Uh, sorry, not Ephesians, uh, Revelation. So we're working through this book together. 
And, uh, sorry, you have to bear with me. You get a little bit of a sports analogy this morning, partly because it's, well, I don't know. It connects in my mind, so hopefully it connects in your mind. But if you're remotely a Philadelphia 76ers fan, uh, you right now you're kind of in this f- phase where we're, you know, watching the news headlines, you know, on a daily basis to find out if they have successfully traded away their point guard, Ben Simmons, who is refusing to play for the team. He's demanding a trade, being a total punk. Well, sorry, I don't mean to say that. But, anyway. but uh, so we're, you know, we're watching, you know, all the, you know, the headlines and the news and the, you know, the conjectures about where he might go. And what we have found out, what we've heard recently is that there were, they, they tried to uh, trade him to some other teams, and some other teams offered some players and resp- and back to him. But then what we heard was is that they were trying to send him off as a package deal with another player, Tobias Harris, who's got this bloated contract, is sucking up a ton of money, and he hasn't been doing so well this year. And so they tried to package him with Ben, and these other teams were saying, well, yeah, no, we're not so interested in that package. And the Sixers were saying, well, sorry, take it or leave it. It's a package deal. Uh Here's the connection. <laughs> when you read through, uh, for, I would imagine there, there are more than maybe a few of us here this morning that when we think about the book of Revelation, right, we get, maybe we're interested in, you know, when we can get past chapters two and three and we get into the meat of the book in chapters four and five and so forth, right? When we think about the book of Revelation, we don't often think about chapters two and three. We think about the glorious vision of Jesus in chapter one, you know, or we think about the man, the rich visions and the pictures of the throne room in heaven, or we think about the visions of this climactic conflict with the powers of evil, or the great visions of new creation that are yet to come. Uh, and you know, we could take or leave this section here in the middle, or in the beginning, these letters to these churches. Okay, but the important thing in a book, one important thing to keep in mind, the book of Revelation is that all throughout the book of Revelation, you have this very clear sense that Jesus and the church are kind of like a package deal. You don't get Jesus without the church. You don't get Jesus apart from the church. We can't go, or we can't just take this glorious image of Jesus in chapter 1, or, man, the dramatic portrayals of him unfolding his victory on the stages of history in chapters 4 through 22, right? Without his working in the church. Right? Everywhere throughout the whole book of Revelation, Jesus is always among the church and wielding all that he is and his authority and his victory for the sake of the church. I guess part of the reason I point that out is because I never uh, always take the opportunity to just remind us together of this strong New Testament emphasis that Jesus and the church are package deals, right? And we always have to be on guard for that, right? In our hyper-individualized society, in our Americanized spirituality, or even in the day and age where all the failures, uh, screw-ups of church leaders or all the just annoying and frustrating things sometimes about church people are blasted everywhere on social media. It's almost like this gravitational pull where, yeah, we love Jesus, we want Jesus, we want the glory of Christ and the glory of all the things that he's doing without maybe the messy business of church life. We want Jesus without having to engage in deep relationship with messy sinners 
or come week in and week out to worship services on our day off or, you know, give of ourselves to the mission of the church and the programs of the church and whatever. And we just always need to be reminded and revelation will hit this through and through that Jesus and the church always a package deal. You don't get Jesus apart from the church or more specifically, it would be a misnomer in the book of Revelation to think that you in any way are participating actively in the victory of Christ and his sovereign administration of the affairs of history apart from active participation in the church. And so that's why, and it's very important for understanding the whole you know, purpose and theme of the book to see specifically what Jesus has to say to these seven congregations of normal flesh and blood people just like you and me to get up and go to work in the morning, go to the market and get food, hang out with neighbors and friends, take care of the kids, right? We get to hear what Jesus has to say to them specifically. And this morning, we're going to talk through this letter or this, these specific comments to the congregation in Ephesus. Uh, but just give me one more minute before we dive into it. Let me just... Bear with me, but a little bit more technical as well, too. Let me give you just all these comments or all these letters in chapter 2 and 3 to these churches. They follow a very similar form, and I think it'll be helpful for you to know that. Uh, there's four things that show up in all of these letters, just about all of them. One, you get a dramatic vision of Jesus in the beginning of it, which is also this reminder on the other side that you don't have church without Jesus. Just a few quote-unquote churches out there that seem to would love to be able to do church apart from Jesus, apart from a prayerful submission to him as the one who builds the church, uh, a prayerful uh, submission to, to him and to sometimes the difficult truths that he, hold, he asks us to hold on to or the, or the uncomfortable things he calls us to do in mission or even just a reliance upon or respect for his word as the authoritative revelation of who he is and what he desires of us as his people. Okay, so you have a vision of Jesus to remind the churches Jesus is always at the center. Uh, You have a section where he acknowledges and he affirms and he commends them for certain things. Uh, And then you also have a section where he, he challenges them, corrects them, reproves them, warns them, even rebukes them. And sometimes uh, this seems a little strong. Like in today's letter to the, the church in Ephesus, he says, hey, unless you repent and do the works you did at first, I'm going to come to you and remove your lampstand. You know, and we might be tempted to say, yeah, hey, tone it down a little bit. Why are you so worked up, you know? What happened to the patience and the mercy and the grace of Jesus? You know, all that. And and I would just remind you, because we're probably going to spend most of our time looking at some of these corrective comments of Jesus. And I would just remind you, as we do, that Jesus, part of the reason he's doing this is that, first of all, throughout the book of Revelation, you're going to see very quickly that sin or choosing to live your life in a way contrary to what Jesus would have for you, in the book of Revelation, it's paramount to aligning yourself and partnering with hideous beasts monsters and dragons whose sole purpose is death and destruction, whose sole purpose is to pull you away from the rich life that your creator would have for you. And so it's actually part of Jesus' loving concern for the church that he 
gets in their face and he challenges them and he reproves them. And the other thing to remember, remember the church, they're, they're lampstands of Jesus. They're the ones who are charged to carry the light of Jesus into this dark and beastly world. Right? They're the ones who are to be living, breathing testimonies to who Jesus is and all that he's doing. And so sometimes he has to reprove and challenge and refine them so that they can be more faithful witnesses and testimonies. It's like I hope, hope, I hope my kids all know that if they ever choose to start wearing Dallas Cowboys jerseys, I won't let them come out to dinner with us or, or ride in the car with us because I wouldn't want anybody to look at them and have a bad impression of the Sussex family. Who are these Sussex people? Other kids, right? In a similar way, in a much more sacred way. <laughs> the church is a living, breathing testimony to the name of Jesus, to the goodness and to the glory of Jesus. And sometimes, you know, as we get all deluded in life, sometimes that, wit- that witness goes dim or whatever. And Jesus has to come and reprove and challenge and refine and trend and tend to the lampstands uh, to whatever, repair our, our light for him. Okay, so you got a vision of Jesus at the center. you got words of affirmation and encouragement. You have challenge and correction. And then you also get a word of promise in each of these. A promise that he holds before them to motivate them and to encourage them to press on in faithfulness. Oh, and actually, there actually is one other little thing in each of these comments. You'll have this little phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the churches, plural, not just to the church in Ephesus. Let, he who has an ear, let him hear, which is a reminder to us that these comments to the churches are really for all the, the family of Christ. All the churches, to hear what the Spirit is saying to these churches and let the Spirit speak that to you and to your heart, to our life together as a church this morning, in the coming weeks, right? So that's our intention. That's what we're going to do. All right, so enough technical intro. Let's, let's talk about this section to the church in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus, pretty important city, western Turkey. Actually, one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire at this time, probably a quarter of a million people. Uh, it's a harbor town. It's a port city. It sits on... Uh, the what is it the Aegean Sea there and it's got all these trade routes running through it right so ships would come in with their goods or whatever and then it would go out from there to the various cities uh, and so it which is all to say that it had a thriving economy and a thriving trade going on there uh, it was also a religious hub in the area it had all sorts of temples and shrines and things in the city uh, the most famous one the one that they're most known for was this temple to the fertility goddess Artemis. It was one of the uh, wonders of the ancient world, bigger than a football stadium. It literally had thousands of priests and prophets and uh, temple prostitutes all working there, right? This was a thriving religious center as well, too. Uh, the church in Ephesus uh, was established by Priscilla and Aquila after Paul left them behind on one of his missionary journeys through Ephesus. I was one of the first churches in the region, so it was kind of considered a mother church in the area, which so it was kind of an important church. And it's quite possible that, we don't know for sure, but it's quite possible that there was an air of maybe pride or an air of importance in the Ephesian church. We're a part of this you know, important city and we're part of this important mother church in the region, which might be why 
The opening vision of Christ is one where he's holding the stars in his hand and he's the one in the middle of the lampstands, tending the lampstands. That's actually borrowed from the vision we looked at last week. We talked about the holding the stars in the hand as symbolic of his sovereign authority over the affairs of history. The one who is able to perfectly execute the intentions and the purpose of God. Right? So it's just a reminder, hey, hey, before you get too high and mighty on yourself, maybe, remember, Jesus here is the really important one who has the power and the authority and the lordship and the one who is building his church, tending his lampstands in their very midst. Uh, he encourages them, or he says, I, know, I see your works. I see your toil. I see your patient endurance. And I see, and he goes into, he gives two specifics. He says, I see you, you know, you don't tolerate these false apostles who are coming in with their new Fandango teaching, right? But you're, you're, you're remaining steadfast to the truth that has been delivered to you. And you are fervently guarding that truth. And you're not tolerating these false apostles who are coming in with their evil heresy and all of this. Now, this was actually a problem for the ancient church. Because you had so many temples, so many different religions going on, so many different gods, and so many different worship practices. Actually, it was quite common back then. Like in today's world, if you are a religious person, you tend to be just one major religion. Back then, religious practice and belief, it was kind of a mix-and-match affair. You could customize your religion, right? You could you know, worship Zeus on Sunday or or whatever, and then you go to the temple of Artemis and you can make sacrifices there. You could go to the the shrines or the cult of the emperor and you can make, you know, little worship practices there, right? And so part of the the battle or the, the, the real difficulty in the early church, especially before they had the whole word of God packaged together that they could use, was to be on guard against people who would come and do this, who would mix and match, customize, you know, Uh, the doctrine of Christ and worship of Jesus, maybe with worship of the fertility goddess Artemis. And you had a lot of people who would come and they would share their religious insights and they would try to get people to engage not only in the beliefs and the doctrines that they had come up with, but also the practices, the idolatrous or sometimes very immoral practices is probably what's going on with the Nicolaitans. Uh, That's mentioned a little bit later on in the passage. Uh, But... You know, Jesus, he encourages them that you have been faithful in what has been passed down to you. And you don't tolerate these false apostles who come in and say they're apostles with all this new teaching. But you don't tolerate that. You remain steadfast and true to what's been delivered to them. And the other thing that he affirms from them is that they're bearing up for the sake of his name. Actually, that word shows up numerous times throughout the book of Revelation, which it pretty much means that they are enduring trial and affliction for the sake of the name of Jesus. You know, which is the other thing for the church in the ancient world to claim, know that there's only one God who is worthy of your worship and only one King, Jesus, who has the authority to execute the purposes of God and thus is worthy of your worship, right? That made you seem like you were 
don't know, whatever, too exclusive or whatever. And you were oftentimes the, you bore the brunt of affliction and trial as a result of that. So like if you didn't go to the community feasts at the temple of Artemis or engage in some of the immoral practices in worship to this fertility goddess Artemis, well, you were, you were kind of an, an outcast or you were ostracized from the community. Or if you were a carpenter back then, and you didn't go to the shrines of the patron god or goddess who supported the carpentry union, and if you didn't go offer sacrifices to this patron god or goddess, well, uh, good luck getting the call next time there's a carpentry job uh, come available. Uh, Or if you didn't go to the shrine of the emperor and give your worship and make sacrifices to Emperor Nero or Emperor Domitian, Well, now you're just unpatriotic. And now you have a target on your back. If it ever should happen that the emperor would wake up on the wrong side of the bed and be in whatever kind of mood he's in. Right? So he acknowledges, I see your patient endure. I see you bearing up for my name's sake. Okay, but this I have against you. And here's the correction. Here's the challenge. Uh, Verse 4, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Uh, and here's where there's a little bit of, I don't know, I don't know if debate is the word, but discussion. You know, what exactly is that love that they had at first and that they're neglecting now? Is it a love for, you know, like this love for Jesus, that maybe their love for Jesus has grown cold? Uh, or the other option, is it, is it a love for one another that they seem to be neglecting? Which on the whole, I think, is a false, whatever, dichotomy or divide or whatever. I mean, Jesus very clearly says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And what is my commandment? That you love one another as I have loved you, right? So there is no loving Jesus apart from loving the brothers and sisters in the church. Or, or if you're not loving the brothers and sisters, you're not rightly loving Jesus, but if you ask me, I would tend to side on the side that the probably the specific things that are being neglected here is actually that love for one another within the church. Right? If you look at the rest of the section, they're, they're holding fast to the truth of Jesus, not tolerating any of these false teachers. And out of respect for Jesus, a zeal for Jesus, maybe I would assume a love for Jesus, they're bearing up and they're enduring trial for his name's sake. So it doesn't quite seem to me that their love for Jesus has grown cold. And so I would tend to agree with most of the commentators uh, who would say that probably what's happening here is that their love for one another is waning. Or most of the commentators in this section would say probably what you have in the church of Ephesus is a church that is on point theologically and on point with their orthodoxy and their doctrine such that they're able to sniff out false doctrine and false teachers and they're zealous to uphold that truth and to not have anything to do with these false teachers that are coming in with their heretical statements or their syncretistic ideas or whatever it is. And yet, their love for one another is weak or grown cold. And why this letter is so important, I think, is because you get the clear indication here from Jesus that that is not okay. Or or not only is it not okay, it's actually unbearable for Jesus. Where he literally says, if you don't repent and do the works that you had the first, I'm going to come and snuff out your lampstand. You will no longer give testimony to me if you don't get this figured out. 
which I think is important for us to hear. Right? We can easily sometimes fall into the, the trap or the temptation of thinking that, hey, as long as I have my, you know, my doctrine and we have our theological orthodoxy all, you know, all squared away and we're zealous for that and we're devoting ourselves to understanding that and we're committing ourselves to guarding that and growing in that. As long as we have that, make sure we're thriving at that and doing that well. Okay, that's the main stuff. And, you know, if we're slipping in other areas, well, we can get a pass on that. Right? You need to hear Jesus say, no, 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 you don't get a pass on that. That's not okay, and it's unbearable. And unless you recognize, he says, the state of fallenness that you are in, in your robust theology and orthodoxy, but in your weak orthopraxy or your orthopractice, unless you realize the fallenness of that, and you repent, and you do the works of love that you had at the first, I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to remove your lampstand. You need to hear that. We need to hear Jesus basically calling in love, right, the Ephesian church back to their foundation. Right? You mean think of you know the letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. You know, where the first couple chapters are this glorious statement of the incredible victory that Jesus has accomplished, and all the wonderful things that Jesus is doing for his church. Because he is so concerned for them. Which culminates in this prayer where Paul says, And so it's for this reason that I bow my knees before the Father all the time, praying that he would strengthen your hearts by his Spirit, so that you would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and the breadth and the depth and the length of the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Right? And then you turn the page into chapter 4. The very next verse where he says, And so I urge you to walk, to live in a manner worthy of this great story, worthy of your calling, with all patience and kindness and humility, bearing with one another in what? In love. You know, or he'll go on to talk in you know, chapter 4 about this is what the church does. This is how the church grows. As we give of ourselves in love to one another, like the church builds itself up, he says, in love. Or in chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians, when Paul is exhorting the church, hey, you're supposed to shine the light of Christ in that darkened world out there. And how do you do that? What does that look like? He says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Love one another as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us. Which is also a reminder there that when the New Testament talks about love, It's not just talking about having warm, fuzzy, affectionate feelings for one another, right? The New Testament picture of love is this act of self-giving, of giving oneself up for the well-being of another. Uh, We have this debate going in the car, mostly with Kate these days, sometimes with Megan. Kate really likes to be the uh, controller of the music whenever we're driving around in the car. And we have this... Friendly banter discussion, I think it's friendly, right, Kate, back and forth, where I'm starting to question some of the music that's coming, not because I don't like the music per se, but because I'm asking her, oh yeah, okay, it's Megan too, I get that, some of that, (laughs) not just all Kate, Uh, but why is all these songs seem to be mushy-gushy love songs, or why are all these songs 
seem to be breakup songs, sad breakup songs. Some girl just got her driver's license and thought she was over a guy, but she drives past his house and she's all torn up about it. And apparently you said forever, but you didn't mean forever. And then she writes another song. Do you get deja vu when you're around this new girl because you're doing the same things with her? Do you do with me? It's all these sad. And so we talk about this, like why are all these songs, love, mushy love songs and breakup songs? And I say all this. One, to remind my daughters that I have the opportunity to embarrass them publicly anytime I think they're engaging in things that I'm not too filled, f- fond of. But two, sorry girls, it's just the price you bear as a pastor's kid. But also just to remind all of us that when our culture, when we hear the word love, like the, we tend to associate that automatically with sentimental, affectionate, mushy feelings for another. But the New Testament understanding of love is a very active love. It's self-donation in, in kindness, in acts of mercy, acts of hospitality, acts of charity, acts of forgiveness, right? Or maybe I would say it this way, that when the New Testament calls the church to love one another, it's really simply just calling them to be a family together. Uh, and man, you know, there's all sorts of fun examples of this. If you go back and you look at stuff from the ancient church about the way that the, the ancient church was just odd in their communities because of the way they loved one another with this sort of familial kind of love. Uh, the one example that I often will think of is um, there was this guy, Peregrinus. Bear with me if you're not a big history fan, uh, whatever. Well, anyway, there's this guy, Peregrinus. He was a philosopher and he was... Uh, for whatever reason, long story short, he decided to, as an act of nobleness, commit suicide by throwing himself on the flames at the, uh, at the Olympic festival uh, early in the second century. And, you know, there were all these other young, wannabe, philosophical intellectuals there who saw this great act of nobleness and said, oh man, look at Peregrinus and his, you know, act. And he became sort of like this cult hero. To a lot of these young intellectual philosopher wannabes. And there was this guy, Lucian, who was in the crowd uh, at these Olympics, and he saw this whole spectacle that took place, and he saw all the adulation of these, you know, young hippie philosophers or whatever, and he just had utter disdain for the whole thing. And he wrote, you know, some of these scathing critiques about this guy, Peregrinus, and his sensationalism. And here's why this is important. A Peregrinus. As a philosopher, he flirted at one point in time in his life with Christianity. He even started attending church a little bit to try to find out what this is all like. And so the church welcomed him, and they embraced him, and they made him part of the family. And they cared for him. And so when Lucian is writing his scathing rebukes about Peregrinus, at certain points he also gives out scathing rebukes of the church and these foolish Christians out there. Peregrinus at one point winds up in prison. Church goes and cares for him. And this guy, Lucian, he's look at these gullible Christians that have, you know, showing all this love and support for this guy, Peregrinus. He talks about the church leaders who are there every day to encourage uh, Peregrinus while he's in prison. Or he talks about, you know, how insensible it is to him that there are widows and orphan children who are coming, bringing goods and food and resources for this guy while he's in prison. I brought a quote from him. 
And he actually says this, they're so hasty to lavish their all on this worthless fellow. And he says this, their first lawgiver, Jesus. Again, this is Lucian with his criticisms of the Christian church. Their first lawgiver, Jesus, persuaded them that they are all brothers of one another. And after they, these Christians, have transgressed uh, proper law by denying the Greek gods, and instead worshiping this crucified sophist himself and living under his laws, therefore they despise all things indiscriminately and consider them common property. They despise all things indiscriminately and consider them common property. What's Lucian saying? He's observing in the church that these foolish people, everything that they have, they seem to despise it and that they're willing to hand it over and give it in love and charity to everybody else. They consider it common property. He's just commenting, actually, on what we find in the book of Acts, right? where the early church is meeting together regularly to break bread and to be devoted to the teaching of the apostles and to attend to one another's needs. And if somebody has a need, if somebody's hurting, well, they'll gladly give of what they have to care for that. Or they'll gladly sell their possessions so that they have resources. They'll even sell their homes sometimes in the book of Acts so they have financial resources to tend to those who are in need. And, and we read those sections in Acts and we think, man, that's just, that's just weird and strange. Until you think about it as really what the New Testament church was striving to do was to be a family of love. Because when you think about it, you know, I don't think there's an adult here. Kids, maybe a work in progress, but uh, I don't think there's an adult here. In your home, if somebody else in the home, part of the family, had this need, an urgent, pressing need, that you wouldn't do whatever you could or to attend to that need. Or I don't know of any father or mother here uh, who comes home from the grocery store with the grocery bags and comes to, you know, puts it on the table and says, all right, just want everybody to know this food here and all this stuff, this is mine. I went to Giant. I purchased it with my money. This, this belongs to me. And if you want to have food, I know you got some money for Christmas. And here, here's the, uh, here's the Uber app. They'll, they'll gladly take you to the Lidl or to the Giant. You can get some food. And I'll even let you cook it on my stove or my microwave for your dinner. Or whatever. Right? We don't do that. because, And it makes good sense to us because that's how family works. You see, in modern culture, we, I mean, we value, we prioritize, dare we even say sometimes we even idolize the nuclear biological family as the most important relationships in all of life, which is extremely important. But you just need to understand that in the ancient church, uh, the church family was every bit as important to these people. I mean, I'll spare you the time, but there's a whole ton of examples of people writing letters to their biological family while they're in prison and saying, I'm sorry, you know, I've got this new family, which is of such great importance to me. Or we have examples of... You know, the, this, this great plague sweeping through the city of Alexandria, far worse than the coronavirus that we, you know, we have to deal with here, and wiping out major sections of the city. And when everybody else was fleeing to the hills for the pure air of the countryside, the church was staying and tending to one another. You know, we have letters by church leaders coming and saying, man, we've lost some very noble brethren, not because they initially were contacted the plague, but because they went into the homes of their brothers and sisters 
with such love and devotion for them, to tend for them, to care for them, and that the name of Jesus, even contracting in themselves this disease and departing this life with their brethren. In other words, all to say, this is, this is for Jesus, this is foundational of what it means to do life as a church together. And it's foundational for what it means to give witness to me, to Jesus. And it was. It's actually a historical fact that, man, this, this crazy love that these group of Christians had for one another, it was so stark and it was so striking, right, that the surrounding people would be asking questions and saying, what God is this that you worship? Who is this Jesus who compels you and who inspires you to live life in this way? Uh, maybe just as we begin to close this up, I guess the, the question that, that all these letters are going to pose to us, and especially these points of critique that Jesus raises, right? It, it's an opportunity for us with ears to hear the critique and to ask the question, okay, so how are we doing with that? How are we doing both holding on to our convictions, our doctrinal principles, our good theology, our orthodoxy, and also giving ourselves in love as Jesus gave himself in love for us and gave himself up for us? How are we doing? Remembering, this is part of the foundational business of what it means to be Jesus' people, to be Jesus' lampstand. How are we doing remembering this is one of the primary ways that we're going to give testimony to Jesus, right? It's Jesus himself who says, by this will all people know that you are my people and that I am of the Father and the Father has sent me by what? By your, your, your love for one another. I mean, I certainly think that in... A day and age where, man, we're so polarized and so divided as a culture, where it is not our first instinct to act in love, but rather we first size people up. We decide if you're a friend or foe, if you think like me, act like me, look like me or whatever. And if you do, you're safe and you're within my tribe and I can show you love. But if not, I fear you. I'm uncertain about you. And so at best, I hold you at arm's length. At worst, I want far away. You know, worse for you or whatever. And in that context, nobody, nobody listens to one another anymore. Nobody cares to understand the other anymore. Nobody cares so much, or at least first and foremost, to think, how can I love the other? Man, a church that chooses in that kind of culture to love indiscriminately, sacrificially after the manner of Jesus, I think can have a pretty powerful testimony. And I would just say it's something that we have to, we're going to have to work at. Because if it's true that, you know, our culture is moving further and further away from Christian principles and ideas and truths or whatever. And if it's true that we are living and operating as Christians, not so much in the majority dominant perspective anymore, but now out of a minority position. Well, one of the things that shift or change does is it brings with it a certain level of insecurity uncertainty or fear of the other. And we got to watch out for that because fear is the great barrier to love. When I fear something, uh, I'm not inclined to sacrifice myself in love towards that, right? So we got to be careful about that. We got to be careful that in our fervency to guard and hold on to the truth of Jesus and the principles that he has given to us, that we don't let that be caused now all of a sudden to not listen, to not seek to understand, or not to care for and love the outsider and the other. 
I mean, we certainly don't flip to the other side too and do like some churches are doing and just everything just be done in the name of love and acceptance and approval and affirmation and all this stuff too. That, whatever that is, that's not Christ-like love. Christ-like love is willing to get in the face of the church and reprove and challenge and correct, right? So I'm not at all saying that, but I'm just saying we've got to be on guard. Uh, there seems to be a lot of fear stoked <laughs> in culture and in the community, on the news and on your social media feeds. I mean, fear is this huge barrier to love. And not only is it hindrance, or hindrance a hindrance to our testimony out there, but it can be a total disruptor to the life of the church in here as well, too. So what's the solution? I think it's, well, to look at the vision of Jesus at the center. The Jesus who holds in his hands the seven stars, symbolizing his sovereign authority over the affairs of history. Right, The one who has the victory and who will accomplish the eternal good purposes of God and who is moving and living and breathing in the midst of the church, caring for them, tending to them, right? And when you see that vision of Jesus, man, fear just seems kind of stupid, right? Because you're looking at this vision of the exalted, glorified Jesus. Why would we fear? Why would we let our love suffer out of fear when the one who holds the stars in his hands is living and moving among the churches? So we looked at that vision of Jesus, And we look to the promise. That's the last thing in the section. We'll close it with this. Jesus gives the promise that to him who conquers, to him who overcomes, I will grant the right to eat of the tree of life in the garden, in the paradise of God. All right, tree of life, the thing that Adam and Eve, uh, you know, were denied. And they turned their back on God and they had to leave the garden. But you look at the close of the book of Revelation, you have this glorious picture of this river flowing in and through the city of God and all along its banks. And not just one tree of life, but a whole garden grove of tree of life, which are meant, it's a symbolic picture. That Jesus is leading his church to this day that is coming where we will feast in the grove along the river and we will enjoy resurrection life to the full. Because he's the sovereign authority over history. And because he wields history for the life and the sake of the church. And so that's coming. So endure, persevere, be faithful in love. And remember that all of that is yours because Jesus first was willing to hang naked on on another tree. A tree of shame. Who was willing to give himself up and to suffer death. And to suffer the punishment of sin, to suffer the curse of sin so that you wouldn't have to, so you could be forgiven of your participation with the monsters and the hideous beasts. Or if you, he gave himself up to suffer the consequences of your own lack of love or your own infidelity to him. He gave himself up. He handed his life over so that you could enjoy life to the full. And he did it in love. So how are you doing? Fixing your eyes on that, seeing that, soaking it in, embracing it. And how are you doing, right, living that out with one another, with your neighbor? I feel as a pastor, I feel the, uh, the, 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 the pull to want to affirm you this morning because I do think that this is a very loving congregation. I know my family has been a recipient of that, and I see that, and I see your works of love, and I thank you for that. And really what this sermon more or less is is a reminder to you that that's not just a nice thing that we do. Now that's the heart and soul of what it means to be the church. 
that we live out the love that Christ has shown to us with one another before a watching world that desperately needs to see that and desperately needs to come to Jesus. And so we pray that Jesus would do that, that he would inspire us with these visions of himself and lead us in his own love as a testimony to him, all that he is and all that he has done so that we might grow up in him and so that the watching world may find life to the full in him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.